Lord, we just ask you to bless this evening as we look at this one chapter in Jude and continue this. We ask you to guide and lead us and show us what you would want us to see through the different controversies and help us to understand those. Help us make us be good students of the word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jude, chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, we've covered quite a bit of territory. We've talked about... Uh, the accusations and everything in Jude 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust, and their mouth speaks great swelling words, having men's persons and admirations because of advantage. But, beloved, remember you the words that were spoken before the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to stop because it's even though we're still in the same sentence, we're never going to get to the, that far. <laughs> All right, so he starts out talking about Enoch, the seventh from Adam. That is given to us from Genesis 8, the... He is the seventh, seventh in line of Adam. And so we, we know that his line is from the righteous line that is given all the way through till Noah. And one of the things we want to mention about those genealogies is God's most caring about the genealogy that leads from Adam to Noah. We have a little bit of, in, uh, of uh, Cain's line. We get a little bit of other people's lines. But pretty much he's only caring about one line from Adam to Noah, and from Noah to Abraham, and then from Abraham to David, and then David to Jesus. He's following a line through that. And every once in a while, we'll get some genealogies from other places, but there's only one full line that he cares about, and he's just picking out that one line. Not that there aren't other people, and even in all those genealogies, we don't know if we're always talking about the oldest child. We're probably not. We're talking about the child that... God is focused on to get to, to the line that he's going to, Noah or, or David, or Noah, Abraham, David, or Jesus. And so they work their way through all of these genealogies. So here he says, Enoch, and he says, Enoch has prophesied. Now, the thing about this is we have no clue what book he's quoting from. All right? It is generally accepted that the book of Enoch that we have in our day and age is not the book that they were quoting from. It's believed that it showed up around 600 AD rather than being able to be quoted from way back here in the first century. Having said that, we're going to deal with the book of Enoch real quick. Uh, the Jews did not recognize the book of Enoch as a, a book of canon. They did not recognize it as scripture. The book of Enoch that we have that is being talked about in today's world is a really crazy book. If you've read it, good, good for you. <laughs> I don't recommend its reading uh, to most people. It is a book that talks a lot about having power over angels and demons by being able to speak certain words that give you power. It's used by people that are doing exorcisms because it's supposed to be powerful words. It talks about Enoch having talked with Noah, which is a pretty good trick. Seems how Noah was born 69 years after the death of Enoch, after the translation of Enoch. So that book that is written there is definitely not scripture. <laughs> All right, and has many, many problems. Uh, I have read through most of it. I gave up because it was so <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> uh, but just to give you an idea, there's people that talk about that book as if it's this book. It is not. We know that they could not, that he could not have talked to Noah. So that section of the book makes it very clear that it is not scripture. It is not accurate. We had to be careful when we we're, when we're listening to all these attacks. Uh, during the eight, 16 to 1800s, a whole rise came up of skepticism about the Bible and, and all of this. And it has, and they've come up with some very strange things. And and because people don't want to believe the Bible anyway, they accept all that unfounded skepticism as gospel 
and what they said is, is valid without going back and checking it out. But when you go back and check things out, it's like, well, these books you're saying were just thrown out by them didn't exist. They're contrary to the Bible. Most of the Gospels and stuff that they want to point to are Gnostic Gospels, which have nothing to do with Christianity, uh, though Gnosticism is coming up. And Gnosticism is the idea of knowledge. Gnostic is knowledge. And Gnostic Christianity is that knowledge is where everything is. And Jesus, what Jesus really probably wasn't a real person. He just, he was a concept and, and taught really good things. And is not, you know, somebody he gathered up all these teachings. And, and the Gnostics believed that anything of flesh is bad. So Jesus could not, the Son of God could not have become flesh because then he would have been evil because he would have been flesh. And he had to be just a spirit if he existed at all. And it gets into some really interesting thought processes. And much of the scripture was also written against the Gnostic, especially John. John wrote a lot against the Gnosticism. Uh, when, we do, when we do 1 John, we'll be talking a lot about Gnostic teaching because 1 John is all about the, the battle against the Gnostic movement that was starting even that early in Christianity. During the uh, enlightenment error, uh, people were starting to say that, well, we can't trust the Bible and we've got all these errors in it. And most of the errors were thrown out without proving their errors, but because people were wanting to believe that there were errors, they grabbed hold of things. And this is the problem people have is when, they, when a lie is spoken to them, they're quite often more than willing to just accept the lie because they don't really like the truth. And so the lie gives them something they can grab hold of, even though the lie is a lie. And we've seen it with evolution. You know, evolution has fallen apart as science is, is proving that evolution cannot have happened, could not have happened, and does not make any sense. But still, people hold on to the lie you know, real hard. And so we see this. It happened for scripture. It happened in Christianity. It's happened all the time. And here we've had this book that's come up. And believe me, I have come across the people that just they, they grab hold of that book of Enoch and go, you've got to read this book. It's so wonderful. Why? <laughs> you know, it's, it's full of Gnostic teachings. It's full of the power of, you know, I can control demons just if I learn these words and I can control demons. You know, and that's a big portion of the book. It goes into the idea that, that Enoch walked with Noah and, and talked with Noah, even though Noah was born after he was left this, left this world. Uh, so there's all kinds of problems. And I just want to make sure when you hear people talk about the book of Enoch, if they're really, really, really gung-ho on it, do not try to get them out, out of their belief on it because it's not going to work. I've had many, many, many people that I've talked to, and you got to read this. I'm going, why? It's anti-Bible. Oh, no, this, that, and the other thing. I'm going, it's got too many things that are got wrong in the Bible. So in their case, I just try to get them saved so that God can get them out of the book of Enoch because it really is not a good book. Now, here, there's something that, was pro you know, something that they were looking at. Now, where, the, where he was pulling this from, we don't know. And this goes into the, the long thing, and I think I've mentioned this several times. The Jews have backstories and old stories for every single story in the Bible. All right? They will tell you that when Moses said, I, I cannot speak, they have a backstory on why he could not speak. They have, they have him in the palace in, with uh, Pharaoh, and he grabs a hold of a hot coal, sticks it in his mouth, and burns his tongue. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that talks about that. Is it a possibility? Well, it's a possibility, but it's somebody's made up reason why he could be saying, I, I can't speak when he's trained to be a speaker and, and trained to be the court. Uh, I think he was just making an excuse. I, I don't believe that he had a problem. He was just saying, God, I don't want to go back there. I got kicked out. If I go back there, they want to take my head. So let me come up with whatever excuse I can come up with. And that was one of his excuses, like we do all the time with God. You know, and most of our excuses are not valid excuses. They're just excuses. Uh, because if you look at the scripture, even after Moses said, I can't speak, and God says, fine, your brother Aaron, Aaron will speak for you. Everywhere we look at, Moses is speaking to Pharaoh. 
He's not even using Aaron to speak. He is the one that says is speaking to, to Pharaoh. Uh, so it was all an excuse, you know, from what I can see. And here we have this whole story, and it says that this is a book or a prophecy made from Enoch. Now, I'm not doubting that Enoch made a prophecy. I'm not doubting that there was even a book written by Enoch. But by this time, I don't think they had the book of Enoch because it would have been almost 3,500 years from the flood, or at least 2,500 years from the flood to this point in time. Whatever was there was probably lost. And I do believe, contrary to what most scientists will tell us, men were not stupid before, when they first came around. I, I believe that, uh, I personally believe Noah probably had an entire library with him on, from the knowledge of the pre-Diluvian age when, when men were already doing metallurgy and everything else was going on, creating advanced musical instruments. So I believe he probably took a library. I would have. I would have taken a library because there's a lots of things I don't know how to do. And if the whole world was going to be destroyed, I'd be getting as big a library as I possibly could so that my kids can, could start learning to redo the stuff that was no longer in existence. Now, I can't prove that, but I also don't believe that men were stupid. And this is, I've, show, I've gone over this, you know, men, you know, our science wants to make, have people have a caveman that was so stupid they couldn't hardly speak and had to learn how to do things. Adam and Eve were extremely smart, taught by God, who taught their children. And within just a generation of two of Cain, they were already making bronze and, and metallurgy and were creating advanced uh, instruments that we had to relearn. And it took thousands of years after the flood to relearn some of the, some of the stuff that they were doing before the flood. So if anything, there is a small amount of, yeah, man got stupid after the flood and didn't have as much brains to get this stuff done. It took them a lot longer. But before the flood, God had instructed them really well, and they had learned a lot. And they were very smart. Well, they had to rebuild well, so they had to rebuild everything. Their lifespans were shorter. Uh, and I think there could have been a lot of depression. Can you imagine what it would be like getting off the boat knowing? that you're supposed to be able to make a brass trumpet, but not even knowing how to, how to get the, the copper and stuff out of the ground to make brass in the first place. And you're, and you're trying to rebuild your homes, and you're remembering how much there was. Now, and we think about this in, in, in some of our futuristic you know, uh, movies and stuff where the world has been destroyed you know, out of a nuclear blast, and people are trying to sc scratch out an existence knowing that there was better. And I think Noah would have had that same problem. Everything he knows has been destroyed. And 1,500 years, or 1,465 years, <laughs> that they had advanced society being, being pulled together. How advanced? I don't know. I don't know how advanced they were and how smart they were, but they were a lot smarter than they were after the flood because all that knowledge had been lost. And, you know, so everything was lost, the cities, the, all, the, all the sin, and all the technology that led to the sin, and all of that was lost. And there had to be some kind of a depression for poor Noah. Getting off that boat, and there's no cities, no... And he's having to start from scratch, not knowing, you know, I don't know whether he was a man who did construction, how much construction, he built a boat, so he knew something about construction. But did he know the technology behind everything that he used? Now, we don't know what all happened. He wasn't dumb. The pre-Diluvian man was not dumb. Even what little were told about, about that was they were very smart, doing very advanced things for, for our knowledge. And so we know things were moving along. And all that was lost. And they get off the boat and have to start all over. And I think it would be even harder to start over. It would be one thing to start over when you didn't know what you're missing. It'd be quite another thing to know that you're missing a lot. Because uh, I've thought about that. I'm a computer programmer. I can, build a prog I can build a computer if you give me the parts. I couldn't build the parts. 
How, how would I feel if everything was destroyed and going, wow, I really would like to have a computer. I know a computer is possible. Yeah, but how do I how do I go out and find the metal to build the parts? How do I process the silicone to make in, make chips? How do I, you know, melt down the pla you know, how do I make the plastic in the first place? Then how do I melt down the plastic and then form it into the right right pieces? I wouldn't have a clue. And the people who had the clues on how to do it wouldn't know how to make the computer. <laughs> so and all of this happened, and here we have this book of Nova uh, Enoch with a prophecy. And we don't know where he's quoting it from, what he's quoting from. The one thing we do know is that it is not a book of canon from the, from the Jews. So even if it was from what you've said, you know, maybe it was the old one and, and that may or may not be true. I, I just know what I've been told. But even if it was, it wasn't part of the canon. They were looking at it saying, this doesn't fit the rest of scripture, so therefore we're not accepting it. And there's lots of things that are done in that, in that manner. And we need to be very careful when we do this. And the Bible is full of books that be in reference, and, and especially in Kings and Chronicles. And the rest of his acts were written in the book of yeah. the prophet so-and-so, or this, or this book, or that book. And we're going, all right, we don't have those books. Well, when they were written, they obviously had those books someplace for them to, to be recorded. Uh, had a library someplace with these books in it. And the same thing for us. We've got libraries full of books. Not every book in the library is worth reading. Not every book in the library is worth even taking into consideration. And the more we start rewriting our history, the more we start rewriting in, uh, information, the less valuable some books are getting. Uh, and it's kind of interesting when you listen to people they're rewriting all of history, you know, revisionist history. And most of the new stuff is not about history, is not worth even reading. And they quote things as if they're speaking factually, but they do not back up where they're getting any of their facts from. And you're going, well, I've read their diaries, I've read their journals, I've read this, and nothing that you're saying matches up. Well, they lied. Okay, prove it. <laughs> I'm going to accept their first-hand account long before I'm going to take your account, you know, three, four hundred years later, a thousand years later, you know, that they lied. All right, I'm going to take their word that they weren't lying. And unless you can prove to me through some other source that they were lying. And this is what's going on. People are rewriting history to make it the way they want it to be. And we have a problem, in, even in today's world, we're judging everybody in the past by today's standards. And that's a problem. They were nice, you know, godly people in their day. Maybe they were doing things that we would consider today wrong. But they weren't wrong in their day. So for us to go back and say, well, look how terrible they were. No, they, they, they did not look at that the way we did. And maybe what we're looking at isn't a good thing anyway when we rewrite some of our history and look back. Uh, you know, we've got all kinds of problems in our society that we are accepting. And you know, granted, we don't have slaves, but we do have a lot of other bigger problems in our society that we're you know, looking back at them saying, well, you know, they did this, this, and this, and, then we, you know, and we don't accept that anymore. And some of it, I'm not sure was that bad a deal. And we need to be careful looking back and saying, uh, how things have changed and everybody in this room is except for Samuel is old enough to remember how some of the norms have changed in our in our in our world some of the things that were are normal today would not have been accepted at all you know 30 40 50 years ago some of the things that were done back then would not be normal you know or allowed or be good whether that's good or bad I don't know I don't really care as long as it's not against what God says I really don't care what they said what they did, what we do, what we, what we don't do, unless it violates scripture. Lots of what we do in today's society violates scripture. And I would rather have been back there where it doesn't necessarily violate scripture. Uh, but remember also, there's nothing new. There is nothing new. What is being done today has always been done, maybe not quite as openly as it is today, there have been times in history when it has been just as open. 
you know, uh, you know, we look at our world, and I've heard, and it gets me so upset when I hear, you know, Christians say, well, if God doesn't judge us, then he has to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah and all these things. Well, uh, Rome was destroyed for all these sins. Greek, Greek was destroyed for all these sins. The Egyptians were destroyed for all. You know, God will judge, and it will happen. You know, God will judge the sin. Not in our time. Not when we think it's supposed to be, thankfully. Because if we, if we had God judging as fast as we want judgment, we'd, we'd, have been, we'd all have been in trouble. Because even though we don't look at ourselves when we want judgment, how fast do we want judgment on those around us? Uh, God, I wanted it yesterday. But don't judge me, God. I, uh, I, I, you know, I, I want grace. I want mercy. But go get them. Yeah. God is going to bring his judgment in his time. And all through history, this, what we're living is not new. It's happened in every empire at their fall. It happened at the, the, before the flood. It's what led to the flood. It's what happened to the Canaanites when Israel was told to go in and destroy all the Canaanites because of their, their sexual perversions and their just evil nation. And we've seen it over and over in history when a nation and an empire gets to a certain point if you start reading their history on it, they talk about all the fornication and, and homosexuality and transgenderism and all these things and, that are going on, and God destroys them. Now, the only thing I see is I don't know what nation is going to take the place of the rest of the nation because this is around all over the place. Now, there are still some places where God could say, these ones aren't quite as bad, and I'm going to let them rise up in power. We don't know. Because each point in history, you know, when we look at when revival comes, if you look around what was going on around them, people go, oh, we're at the end of the world. No, you know, we're, there's no hope for us. Everything is just so evil. People are doing evil things, and God steps in with a revival. Is he going to do that this time? I don't know. All I can tell you is what happened in you know, early 1900s, mid-1900s, when the Jesus movement came. There were people that were freaking out because of all the adultery and fornication going on. In the 1800s, with all the alcohol and the, and the fornication that was going on, people were going, it's the end of the world. We're never going to see God. You know, God can't, can't redeem this country. During the Great Awakening in the 1700s, the same thing. And you go back each step where you go back and say, people around people were saying, we're at the end. It's just so evil. God can't can't rescue it. Will he do it? I don't know. Can he do it? Absolutely. It's happened many times. So back to Enoch here. I got off track there a little bit. So Enoch's prophecy was, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Now, this is going to be a lot of saints. And you know, at verse 14, coming back. And, you know, one of the things that people think, you know, and I always want to point out, there was a time when 10,000 was a big number. Not so long ago. <laughs> All right. Even in the early 1900s you know, of the last century, 10,000 was a lot of numbers, a lot of stuff. And all of our songs say 10,000 years, you know, 10,000 angels, because it's only been recently that we started talking well, in the mid-1900s, mid we started talking about millions. Now we talk about trillions and uh, billions and trillions like we know what that is. Now, nobody knows how big that number is. I mean, we know it's a big number. Uh, I would challenge anybody just to count to a trillion. See how long it takes just to count to a trillion. It would take a long time you know, you know, just to count that high if you were going one, two, three, you know, it would take you a long time. And we talk about billions and trillions like we have any clue as to what those numbers are. They used to talk about 10,000 that way. 10,000 is more than we can think of. 10,000 is, you know, can't even imagine those, those kind of numbers, especially when it came to wealth or, or problems. And so he says he's going to come with tens of thousands of his saints. And people go, well, how would Enoch have even known that kind of a number? 
Well, I have actually taken, played with projections with the lifespan of the people before the flood. And the lowest number that I could get to would be a quarter of a million people on the earth at the time of the flood. And that was with using them only having a child every 20 years. I am sure they had more children than one every 20 years. <laughs> All right. Uh, and making their childbearing years only about 200. So if you actually said they had a child every two years and you had them being able to bear children for about six, 700 years, there was close to a trillion people probably on the world at the time of the flood. That's a lot of people. A lot of people at the time of the flood. And it makes sense. How evil is it that evil, how much people would there have to be for so much evil for God to say, that's it, I'm done with it? Kind of like our day in, in, in the world we're in today, where we have so many people all doing things their own way that God says, I've had enough. It's, it's coming to an end. And I think we're close to that end because I think we're right about the same place where they had a population before the flood and today's world. And we're having people doing what they want to do, what's right in their own eyes, just as they were doing before the flood. And you know, even after the flood, it didn't take men long to start doing what was right in their own eyes. You come to Nimrod, and Nimrod was already developing all of the false religions. And everything in Babylon and Nimrod comes, comes out is the foundation for all of the false religions of the world. And during his day, there were two groups. Nimrod, with all the false religions, and the people that followed Eber, who followed monotheism and followed the god of, of Noah at that time. And Abraham comes out of the seed of Eber. And so he was trained correctly to follow one god and then listened when God spoke to him. So we have all of this stuff going on, and this is what the history goes into. And you know, the book of Enoch was written even before all of that. He was writing at a time, if it was actually, you know, quoted correctly from him, and it was the Enoch that, that, that was being referred to here, he was writing at a time when people were already starting to walk in their own imaginations and ignoring God. At a time when, Ab when Adam was still around or just recently passed away, Adam lived to almost long enough to be able to meet Noah. Not quite that far, but almost long enough to meet Noah. Yeah. And we've, we can't imagine those long lifespans. Because <laughs> Noah was 600 years old when the flood happened. Can you imagine being able to talk to the, you know, to the one who saw, creation, you know, saw God, walked with God, knew, knew what it was like? What, what a thing that would be. You know, to be able to see that. And then the world, even with Adam living, is starting to go way off the rails. <laughs> old great, 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 grandfather Adam, he's been old, he's been around so long, he's kind of losing his marbles. He believes in a God that created this world and and started everything and that he's a special, special uh, creation. It's really hard for us to even picture that and know how much overlap there was in these in these people's lives. Giving people the handout that shows the, the time spans on people's lives, that how long it was that they overlapped each other. And when you think of even somebody like Noah, Noah lived long enough, and I'm sure he did and he was in the wrong place, he lived long enough to have met Isaac. You know, that's pretty amazing. Because Isaac's way, way further on in the story, and yet we say, there he is. We've talked about Eber on several, several occasions. He outlives Joseph in the area that he is in. He outlives Joseph. We never talk about him after, after that one little mention in the, in the genealogies, and then he lived this long, and we know from history that he was one that was pushing for the monotheistic religions. After that, we don't hear him because God switches over to gets down and starts talking about Abraham. And I've always wondered, you know, Eber is one of those guys I'd like to meet when I get to heaven and find out 
who all did you talk to? What was it like to have to battle against Nimrod and, and see all these things going on and watch all this stuff falling apart around you, knowing that it was righteous and he lived as long as he lived. He's the last of the long living patriarchs and was the, found, you know, the one that founded Hebrew. All right, and we've mentioned this several times that Jews are all Hebrews, but not all Hebrews are Jews because the Hebrew people are the people of Eber. He is the one that founded that Hebrews are monotheistic worshipers, which are why the world did not like them because the world was worshiping idols. So they did not like the monotheistic Hebrews and of which the greatest one that we know of is the Jews. But the Jews have not been the only monotheistic religion out there. And most of Asia was monotheistic and was not known because it was separated from everybody else. But they were monotheistic up until the last millennia that they were following a monotheistic relationship. And not perfectly the way we would understand it, but they understood God. Why is it? Most of it is probably the fact that our DNA has been been totally messed up over the years. The sin, when Adam and Eve were created, they had perfect DNA. And over the years, it's been corrupted to the point of now. It's so corrupted that we have diseases and sicknesses that are coming from our DNA. Part of it would be the Tower of Babel when God split up the nations in certain groups. So now you have a, a homogenous group that is passing on the same defects, of, defects through that same group. Even though they were large, they were still broken down from other groups. It is quite possible that certain lines had been polluted fast enough that they weren't, weren't as strong and had polluted themselves by separation. Uh, we do know that after the flood, Many lives were very short. When Pharaoh met Jacob, it's a very short thing in there, but if you remember, he looked at Jacob and said, how old are you? And at the time, I think it was, I can't remember off the top of my head, but he goes, I'm 127 and long and hard have my years been. And he's going to live another, though, after that. And Pharaoh looks at him like, it's an amazing thing. So yes, there was righteousness that did get rewarded with a longer life and purity. And part of it is, you know, just plain and simple. If you live righteously following God's rules, you don't destroy your body as fast as you do if you're doing dumb things when you're a kid. You know, not that there's that many people that don't do that anymore, but a lot of people do live much older. And when we're at peace with God, things aren't as stressful on our body and we're starting to really learn how much stress destroys the body. So the more we learn to rest in God, the easier our, we are on our body and the longer that we will live anyway just because of the less stress. And you're saying that a joke, but I've said this many times. I have looked at so many people that have followed God all their life and you know they're 80, 90, 100, and they don't look like they're 80. Then you look at somebody who's been having a real hard life, not following God, and they're, how old are you? You look like you're about 100. I'm 40. Whoops, sorry, I didn't mean to. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that, you know, but, but it really is true. The sin and the stress has pressed their body so hard that they look like they're ancient. And this is a problem, and it's, you know, so when we say, why did they live longer? It's a whole combination of things. Before the flood, it was because of the purity of the DNA. I'm absolutely sure of it. But we also know that when Jesus reigns for the millennial kingdom, Isaiah says that if you, lived, if you die at 100, you're a young child. So somehow during the millennial kingdom, Jesus returns it back to long life, Part of it is going to be the peacefulness that people are living by and the lack of stress so that their lives will go back. Some of it is going to be the cleansing that he does as the ruling. Now, it's not going to go back to a perfect Garden of Eden situation, but something about it says life is longer. The animals are back to the way they're supposed to be, not killing each other, not killing human beings. And he's ruling with an iron scepter so that nobody is committing sins at that point in time to 
to give us problems. He's, you know, they're all blessed. They're all getting the food is being grown the way it's supposed to because the ground isn't following all of its curses. And we're during that period, we are much closer to where we're supposed to be and lifespans will be expanded. Now, why? I don't know. <laughs> you know I don't know all the definitions on that. All I do is read the Bible and say, wow, there's going to be a different world during that millennial kingdom. And we're going to reign with him in our glorified bodies during that period of time. And we'll be helping to run things. We, definitely, we won't die because we've already, we've already got our glorified bodies. But the people who made it through the tribulation could be, they're still going to give birth, live, die, and some will die during that period of time. All right? And then the ones who come out of the tribulation will come into the millennial kingdom. And then there will be people by the end of that thousand years that don't remember anything about the tribulation because I don't think our memories are going to get any better as far as remembering the past. And anyway, who's going to remember five, six hundred years ago? You know, I'm, I'm living to be 800 years, but I'm forgetting what it used to be like. And then we get to the end of the millennial kingdom when when Satan is released again to give one last temptation to the people, many of them are going to turn and follow him and say, basically, we are tired of being made to not sin. We want to go back and be like God and all the other things Satan is going to come in and tell him. He's going to tell him exactly the same things he's been telling, telling us for 6,000 years. You can be like God. You can do your own thing. You can... You, you know, you can, you can know what you want to know and all these things and, and people are going to fall for it. Even having reigned with Jesus, being under his direct control for a thousand years. That's hard to even imagine. You've reigned and lived in as close to perfection as you're going to see on this world and reject him. And it also goes to the, the major lie that is being told today by Satan. That if man just had a perfect environment, everything would be good. If we just lived in utopia and everybody had all the food they wanted and a perfect government and, and nice weather and all of these things, everybody would be perfect and everybody would be singing you know, joyful songs and saying everything is going to be good. And God has already said, no, they won't. No, they won't. At the end of the millennial kingdom, the much of the world will rebel against God. That last big lie of Satan will be proved to be a lie. And how does it get proved to be a lie? It takes the millennial kingdom. Because how do we know? Because you know, as long as we don't have that event, then, then anybody could say, well, if it just had happened, it would have been true. The millennial kingdom will be the proof that that lie is a lie. And I've heard many pastors, well, don't know why Satan is being released at the end of the millennial kingdom. I do. It's the lie that it's the last big lie that Satan is telling people. If we just lived in utopia, if we just had utopia, everybody would be happy. There'd be no wars. Nobody would be would be out to get each other, and everything would be perfect. And yet we know God has already said that that's a lie. And I know so many people who don't even recognize that that last lie has been already prophesied to be a lie. And yet they don't think about it. Um, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. Is that at the end of the tribulation time or the end of the millennium? End of the tribulation. Because he comes back of all of us as bride for the second coming when he reigns, reigns for his millennial kingdom. So there's probably a judgment at that point in time. Because anybody who's taken the mark of the beast automatically will be cast into hell. They do not get to go through the millennial kingdom. The demons will be cast into hell waiting for the judgment day. So this could be two different judgments that are being referred to. Let's give the timeline of the end days. We have the rapture of the church, which I believe is premillennial, which I gave you all the reasons in that one sermon a couple, week, you know, a couple weeks ago why I believe in the pre-tribulational pre, uh, pre rapture, because that's the only one that meets the imminent return of Christ. Anything else puts it in a time frame. Sometime after the rapture will be the beginning of the tribulation where the Antichrist rises up and takes charge of the world. Still under the control of God. He's still on a leash. Otherwise, he destroyed everything. But he's under the control of God. He says, you can do a lot. You're going to have a lot more freedom. But he cannot just go in and destroy everything because that would be his goal. He reigns for seven years. 
First three and a half are fairly peaceful. Makes an agreement with Israel, brings peace to Israel. They get to build their temple. They get to do all the things. Now, it appears peaceful. I'm sure that it is not peaceful going on because the Antichrist. Then he stands up in the halfway period of it and says, I am God, worship me. The Jews go, we have been deceived. God reveals to them they have been received. They run, they run away and hide, and God protects them for three and a half years. At the end of the seven years of tribulation, Jesus returns with us, his bride, to rule for a thousand years. He will touch down on, his foot will touch back down on Mount Olivet as he left Mount Olivet. It will split in two according to Zechariah with a new valley putting, going in and refresh all that area with, with water. And then he will, one second, he will uh, then rule this world. He will, there will be a judgment of, of sorts. He will cast everybody who's taken the mark of the beast and cast them into hell. All of the demons will be chained and bound into hell. Satan himself will be bound for a thousand years. So for a thousand years, there is no external temptation for sin. Now we still have a problem as we have talked about many, many times. We still have, they, they will still have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. There will still be plenty of people wanting to sin, but the good news is there's no external bombardment of the demonic world to get them to sin. And because Jesus is ruling with an iron scepter, we talk about the idea of thought police, thought crimes. During that period of time, Jesus and the angels will know that somebody's thinking about sinning. Now, uh, I wasn't thinking about, yes, you were. And he's going to rule with an iron rod so that sin will not be prevalent. Now, how that works, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> At the end of the thousand years, he decides that Satan is going to come out and tempt people with all the temptations that will be the same temptations he's always used. And he will come around and tempt people and, and build an army to attack God. And that war will be over very quickly. Then we enter into the white throne judgment. The white throne judgment is when death and hell and everybody who has rejected Jesus Christ will be thrown into the lake of fire as the final judgment for the, the complete second death. So that is an overview of eschatology in... Five minutes. <laughs> Satan has always been under, the, under this uh, when he rebelled. Why God created him knowing he was going to rebel is another story. Why he created us knowing that we were going to rebel is another story. Uh, but God is still in control. Because I've said this before, if Satan had full control, he would just kill every person in the world before they had a chance to get, even come to God. He is on a leash. God says you can only do it. And, and Job is that perfect example. God, I'd really like to take care of Job, but you're not letting me. All right, you can take his stuff. God, you know, well, he didn't respond when he said, but if I take his, if I take his health, he'll really, he'll really, you know, go against you. Okay, you can take his health. Well, God, you know, if you just uh, let me, you know, make his life even more miserable, he'd, he'd rebel. And God says, okay, you can do, you can do that. You know, everything about it was orchestrated and God allowed knowing that he had something that he was going to show. This is great for us to understand. Nothing can happen that God does not allow. Now, I am like everybody else. There's times when I turn to God and go, God, I really wish you would allow a little less to happen. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, this, is, this seems to be really hard. And God says, yes, I know, but I've got, a, I've got the plan. I know what's going on. And Satan will always have this leash. Even during the tribulation period, there will be a leash on him. Otherwise, he would do just that. I don't want anybody to enter the millennial kingdom. I'm going to wipe out the whole world. And God says, no, you can't wipe out the whole world. You can test. You can, you can make things miserable. You can do a lot of things. But you're not going to wipe out the whole world. You know, so he's on a leash and always will be on a leash. And, you know, I don't understand why Satan does the things that he does because God already said he was going to do it and he does just what God says he was going to do. You know, and it just it doesn't make any sense because he knows the word better than we do. He's had longer to read it. 
and absorb it and think about it, and yet he still does everything that God says that he's going to do and gets hoisted up on his own, his own uh, problems knowing that it was going to work. Somehow he has deceived himself so much that he thinks he can change God's ways. Unfortunately, we do too a lot of times trying to do things our way. All right, let's see if I can finish this verse 15 because I think it's important to get to this. To, uh, he comes with the saints to execute judgment upon all, and I believe that there are two judgments on here, which I've never really con I've consciously spoken before. Because when he does come back, he is going to put everybody who's taken the mark of the beast and the demons into hell and Satan. This is not the white throne judgment at this point in time. The white throne judgment comes at the end of the uh, at the end of the millennial kingdom. And he's coming and to convince all that are ungodly among them for their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. Very interesting statement that he keeps going over here to convince to prove their deeds. When God holds court it's going to be very easy for him to prove his case because he actually knows everything. There's no piece of truth hidden that he doesn't know. No loophole for the lawyer to try to go, well, this might have happened or this might have happened. God says, no, I know, I, I know what happened. I also know what might have happened. I know what they could have done and what they didn't do, and I know the options I gave them not to do it. He, he, he would have a case that nobody can do and it says, to convince the ungodly. You took this mark. You knew it was wrong. I don't know how they're going to know these things, but God is going to say, you knew these things were wrong. And they're going to be deceived. People will be deceived. And of their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed. What is all this ungodliness about? They're doing what is right in their own eyes. And because we are wicked to the very core of our being, when we do what's right in our own eyes, it will be ungodly. And this is what the world wants to tell us. All people are basically good. Our psychologists and our, and our sociologists have that as their premise of everything. We're all basically good. I've asked several of them, have you ever taken care of a child? A little tiny child. Most of them haven't. I go, that screaming kid who wants what they want is very selfish, and nobody taught them to be very selfish. That one-year-old playing with the other one-year-olds, wanting everything that everybody else has, was not taught to be that way. Well, selfishness is not really a big, big deal. <laughs> All right, you can redefine your good and, good and bad if you want, but, you know, and what they will tell us is that we, te we give the bad to them because we train them that certain things are bad. In their mind, that if we just left people alone, they would all be loving, kind people to one another, and that somehow they'd outgrow their selfishness. The only problem I think of, and I've seen it, if the kids do not get their selfishness broken, they become selfish children. Then they become selfish teenagers. Then they become selfish, spoiled brat adults <laughs> that don't know how to curb their selfishness and you don't outgrow it. You get trained out of it and taught to get out of it. And their whole idea is based on this idea that if we all just did what was good for us, we'd, everybody would be okay. Well, the problem is if you have a whole group of people all doing what they think is best for them, they don't care about anybody else. And they want all the toys. They want all the stuff. And nobody else should get it because it's, it's what I want. And when you get a whole group of people all wanting what is good for, you know, with all the stuff, you, then you get into a picture of who's the meanest and toughest to, to take all the stuff. And it doesn't work. Their, their logic does not pan out. We have never seen it work out. But, the, but they go, if there was just a utopia, it would all work out. Yeah, we don't we don't have that utopia, so you know you can't be judging judging this because it doesn't work because of how bad everything is around them, which is the whole purpose of the millennial kingdom. That utopia will not work out the selfishness of man. Giving people what they want 
as much of it as what they want will not make them less selfish. All it does is make them want more. And we all know that that's what happens, you know, no matter what it is, what it, we get a lot of whatever, and it doesn't make us happy, we want more. I think it was Getty who was asked, you know, how much more, you know, you know you're so rich, what, how much more do you need? Just a little bit more. Haven't got enough, I need a little bit more. How much more fame do you need? Just a little bit more. I'm not quite famous enough. How much more money? Just a little bit more. How much more of whatever? Just a little bit more. None of it's making me happy. If you're not happy with God, you will never be happy with any stuff. Any sin will never make you happy. And it will all lead to ungodliness. When we're doing what we want to do, Without considering God, it will always be ungodly. Because what does this flesh want? What is best for me. Not what's best for anybody else, but what's best for me. Just give me what I want. You know, you don't get it? Tough. I want it. I want it all. And of all their hard speech, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Harsh, violent speeches that people make against God. How many times have you been around the lost people and just listened to the way they talk about God? You know, I even find it strange when I'm around Christians. Well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a long talk with God about what he did down here. Well, the problem is, if you have that attitude, you're probably not going to heaven in the first place. And you know, when I get before God, I don't think I'm going to be able to speak hardly at all. God, you are going to answer to me for what you did down there. Uh, if you have that attitude, you have the wrong you know, picture of yourself. You, know, you, you are trying to say, I am God, and God is going to answer to me. <laughs> yeah. I, he's the creator, but I, I am smarter than he is, and he's going to tell me, you know, he's going to answer to me. And we all tend to do that. That has been the foundation of the temptation from the very beginning. The very first temptation was if you eat this fruit that God is not letting you eat, he's not letting you eat it because when you eat it, you will be like God. And ever since then, man's problem is that they want to be like God or they want to be God. You know, and this is the problem that we have so often. You know, God, if you just, you know, I know what your book says, but if you just knew my situations and what I'm going through, you would know that your book doesn't apply to me. God, you're, you, you might be God, but I know better than you, so I'm God. Now, we would never say it that way, but how many times have we said something in all of our lives that if we really looked at it and thought it all the way through? We have said just that. Uh, God, I know that you're you know, pretty smart. I know that you're good, but God, if you just uh, really knew my situation... Uh, you'd know that your rules don't apply to me. We have to be careful about that because ultimately that's saying, God, I, I'm God. And we need to be very careful about anything that approaches anything close to that. Because that has been the original sin right from the beginning. That was, that was Lucifer's sin. I am not happy where I'm at. I want to sit on the throne of heaven with God. Now, he didn't say he wanted to be above him at that point in time. I want to be like God. I want to sit, on, I want to sit with him on the throne. I want to be equal to him. He was smart enough to know that he couldn't be above him. But he goes, I want to be, I want to be right there next to him. I want to be co-God. It's, it's a temptation that all of us have. You know, and we need to be very careful because that is the sin that has been out there for the longest time. It is the one that brought Lucifer down. It's the one that brought... Eve down, and it's the one that brings us down so often, often. God, I just know a little bit more than you do, and I think, you know, and even though I don't see the beginning from the end, I just know that you can't be right in what you're asking me to do. And if we didn't do that, we wouldn't go into the sins we go into. You know, we go into our sins thinking somehow we're going to get away with it. Somehow we're going to be the one that it doesn't affect. Somehow we're going to be the one that if all the situations were known, we, that they would be accepted. Instead of just saying, God, you said it's a sin, I'm going to accept it as a sin and not do it. 
we need to be very careful because this is the sin that's the oldest one out there, that pride and desire to be God. And we all have that streak in us where I want to be number one and not submitted to God. Satan wanted to be number one. He was already the head angel, and he wanted to be up there with God. Then we have Adam and Eve. There's only two people. They're in charge of everything. They own their full dominion, and, and they're going to be, now we, we don't want, the world is not enough. We want, we want to be like God as well. But that is our temptation, not to be happy with whatever God has put in our place and want God's place. God, if I just, if more people respected me, if more people liked me, I'd be happy. No, not going to happen. God, if I just could do what I want to do, I'd be happy. Well, anybody that comes up with that kind of attitude, I say, read the book of Ecclesiastes. Because if anybody in human history ever came close to having everything, it was Solomon. And he had money, he had wealth, he had fame, he had everything he wanted, and he still was not happy until he finally came back to God and said, hey, what's the chief end of man? To worship God, to honor God. And our goal needs to be just that. Learn to be content with what God has given us and just to be ready to say, it's, I'm happy with what you've given me. There's great peace in that contentment. Paul said this in himself, I have learned to be content with much or with little. God, whatever you've given me, I have learned to be content. Because what it makes it hard for us is when we always want something we don't have. Then we'll do silly things like go into debt, steal, hurt somebody else to get, to get what, it, what, what they have because I'm just not happy with what I have. And God is up there waiting saying, I'm ready to give you more. When you're ready to handle it, I'll give it to you. But we want it, and we want it now. Not when we're ready, not when God's ready, but give it to me now. And we're seeing it in our generation right now is that you know, when we all grew up, we knew that we couldn't have what our parents had as soon as we got out of the home, and we had to earn it and, and get it. We have a whole generation that they want everything that their parents have and they want it the minute they walk out that door. They want the, the, the top, top of the pay, they want the big house, they want the cars, they want everything. And they're not willing to earn what they're getting because they feel like they deserve it. They have not learned to be content with anything. And it's gonna cause even more problems as we go, go forward. Everybody wanting so much more than what God has put in their place and willing to do just about anything to get it. And that's the sad thing is people are willing to lie, cheat, steal, hurt somebody else to get what they want. And we live in that kind of a generation where, well, I want what I want and I want it now. And if anybody's in my way, they're going to pay. And it's a scary world to be in. It's a scary world to watch these young people demanding to get paid. You know, I'm not going to start at the bottom. Don't start me at the bottom. I, I want to start at the top. And if I can't start at the top, I want the pay at the top. You know, I want what they get paid even though I can't do their job. Because I don't want to prove that I can work. I, I, want, I want their pay. And this is where we're at right now. People demanding to make $15, $20 an hour to flip a burger. You know, that a robot can do. And with their demands, a robot will be flipping the burgers very soon. Because the business is going to say, we're not paying somebody 20 bucks to flip a burger and put it on a bun and put some condiments on it and serve it to the, to the person. It won't take long for the businesses to say no. Then what are they going to do? Then they're going to demand they want the manager's job and the, and the programmer's job and all these other jobs, you know, because there's no low-level jobs to get. And they want what they get paid without knowing how to do their job. The world is coming to a very interesting pinnacle where things are going to fall apart. And it's very interesting. And I'm not trying to be a prophet. I'm just saying I know what I see. Because I understand business. I understand history. We are coming to a pinnacle 
where everything is going to fall apart, which is one of the reasons I don't really believe there's another revival coming. It's going to need a savior to come in and save them, which will be the Antichrist. And if you remember hearing during the height of COVID, everybody was saying, we need somebody to step in and rescue us because this is, we need some world organization, some world leader to come and rescue us. I thought we were in a dangerous point when that was going on. People were asking for a one world leader. And the framework has been laid for this. The next big crisis, whatever it is, could be the one that pushes us over that brink with people going, hey, we got a problem. We need a, we need a one world leader. We need a Messiah. And up will prop the Antichrist. Will it be the next crisis the following one? I don't know, but it's coming. Each crisis pushes people closer to closer to wanting that Messiah, that rescuer, to come and rescue them and make their life bearable. You know, give us, give us money for just being alive. Give us money for, you know, that we don't have to pay for any of Give us. But when, it, when you ask for those things, there's always something that is given. Governments love to give people stuff because they take that, they take that bait and there's a hook in it. And once you're given something, that hook is set and the government controls you. The Antichrist is going to follow in that same thing. They're going to give them everything they think they want. And then the hook will be set and they're going, now, we have just bought you. You are our slaves. And governments have been enslaving their populations for a long time. People go, well, why do farmers plow under fields and pour out milk? Because the government tells them to. And they're taking government money so the government can tell them what to do. And the more money we take from the government, the more the government controls the people. And the governments know this. And they're looking forward to the day when they control everything because everybody is on that hook. All of what's going on in the Antichrist, controlling ungodly deeds and setting up. And we see all of these things coming in to see the end days, the tribulation period, and how easy it's going to be for it to happen and how scary a time it will be when it's time to pay the piper. Because there is no such thing as a free lunch. There's always a price to be paid for all this free stuff that they're given. There's a price to be paid. Which is why I trust God. I love God. His price is pretty easy. I'm going to give you righteousness. I'm going to give you heaven. I kind of like his price. <laughs> all he asks, I surrender my life to him. And let him be in control of my life and have peace and joy and an eternal life. I kind of like the idea of surrendering to him. And knowing the life he gives me on this world is so wonderful and it's nothing compared to what's coming. And it's a beautiful thing when we think about it. Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Help us as we go about our business this week and guide and lead us as we follow. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him, Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23 we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, but God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know Him. Do you know Him? Do you want to know Him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of His family, we encourage you to do these things. First, Tell somebody that you are saved. 
Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.